This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Right On, showcasing the work and lives of Otago and Southland writers. Tune in for news and interviews with your local writers on the second Wednesday of every month from noon to one and repeated the following Sunday at 11am. The university bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect, just-smell-those-books-and-breathe atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, Oh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand new releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner, the university bookshop is evil. You have been warned. Good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to Otago Access Radio and right on with Vanda Simon, which is the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors and it's sponsored by that great team at the University Bookshop. Join us on this rather nippy Dunedin day for the next hour as we delve into the wonderful world of books. Now, David Eagleton is the current Poet Laureate of New Zealand and has published nine collections of poetry over a career spanning more than 35 years. And he's recently released and had published The Wilder Years Selected Poems, a compendium of poems that he has selected from across his works. David, welcome to the show. Hello, hello. Glad to be here. Well, firstly, um, congratulations on The Wild Years. It is a, a beautiful, beautiful hardback book and just stunning as an object oh. and you know, lovely to hold. You know, Thank you how, very much, yes. How good is it to have that collection well, out there? Well, yeah, it's absolutely um, a, um, a peak for me. I mean, it's, um, um, I never thought that I'd um, achieve that kind of... Um, um, sort of possibility of actually having all my poems um, and kind of selecting from the best of them and assembling them into a volume. So that's been um, really great to have that happen and it was really through the good offices of the Otago University Press and in particular the previous publisher um, Rachel Scott who encouraged me to um, put together a selected poems um, featuring the best of my poems of the past, you know, couple, uh, three decades or so. So yeah. Hmm. And how difficult was it to, to actually select a best of when you have you know, that many different separate collections? Um, in fact, I found it quite difficult indeed um, to to um, winnow, winnow it down. And um, in the end, um, Rachel said, "Oh, no more poems. You've got enough. For, <laughs> you've got more than enough here." Um, um, so yeah, that's why it is quite a substantial book. But I I just found it difficult to make those decisions on which poems um, to preserve and which perhaps. Uh, in the end I decided really ones that had topical references would probably um, belong to their particular eras and periods of time and they spoke more about about to people back then about what it was like then. So I, I kind of culled out the best of um, the ones that seem to me to still be relevant today and um, and basically that's what that's what I've tried to use as a guiding principle for the book mm. and I said it's a beautiful object and I just love how like the thick pages and things like that and um, the, the lovely artwork by Nigel Brown how did that collaboration come about um, well I've always been a fan of um, Nigel's um, paintings and um, I have uh, met Nigel around um, 
in here, both in Otago and in, um, when he was living down in Southland. Um, uh, but um, I first came across his work um, years ago when he was basically just starting out, and I've sort of followed his career through. So that's from the, from the late seventies through to the um, through to now, um, and been fascinated by the way his art has developed, um, and, and a kind of with a kind of connection to my own um, perceptions of New Zealand culture and society, and, and he's often painting about social forces and 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 political currents and the in the uh, sort of uh, they're in the air and, and and kind of um so there was a strong relationship i, I, f- I feel between our our particular work um but this this particular collaboration really follows on from our um an earlier book we did a chat book for um the um uh university um printing press have got a um hand-printed books there, which um, uh, I've sort of um, lucky, lucky enough to be included in that series, and that was something that came out in 2018. So this, this, um, this new, this, this book here, which features some of um, um, Nigel's um, graphics specifically for the book, um, sort of follows on from that, so it's a continuum. So I like the idea of actually uh, ongoing collaborations and, and relationships with, with other artists and, and, um, and uh, writers. Mm. Let's talk about your poetry. You know, you've been publishing for over 35 years. How did it start out for you? What was it about poetry that captured your imagination? Um, I think um, I was just drawn to books and to um, the way you could use language and the freedom that um, poetry seemed to offer. Um, and uh, something I kind of just followed through. So uh, uh, it's uh, uh, in a way, it's just a, I'm a product of my education. It's something I sort of found that uh, at school I was drawn to um, reading and and uh, books and um, going into the school library and having a look around at what they had and getting things out. And um, and then um, I was particularly taken by um, poets like um, Dylan Thomas and. Um, and uh, later on, a bit later on, uh, Hone Tufari, and and um, and also we had we had um, Bruce Mason come to our school and um, and do um, sort of solo performances of um, of various excerpts of his plays, which kind of inspired me to think that um, it was possible to use this kind of magnificent language um, here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. It was like it wasn't something that was sort of foreign. It was it was it was something that was it was happening happening. Um, you know, just just um, around the neighbourhood. Um, so that that kind of was very a very vivid experience for me. Um, um, just thinking about trying to make a, a kind of a um, a homegrown response to to um, to these great poets like like that we came across, like W. H. Auden and um, and uh, and Donald Thomas and, and and so on at school. Um, so I was always thinking about how to how to turn my experiences into poetry as well. It's just something I seem to. Um, haven't become a bit obsessed by actually. Um, yeah. <laughs> so did you did you actually start that creative process of writing your own poetry back then in high school? You know, at that time, or was yeah. it something that developed a little later? Um, I was contributing to the school magazine, um, so there was there was definitely a great um, environment.
Parliament for um, encouraging creative writing. Um, it was a little bit unusual. I think we had some good English teachers at the school because it was a relatively new school at the time. It was Aorere College in South Auckland, which they set up in a, um, a new housing subdivision as it was at that time. And I think the the, the education department was keen to, um, to have a, a sort of a have this kind of school which was more progressive and, and so they, they managed to attract quite a few kind of liberal teachers at that time and so um, there, there, were, there were some good ideas to, in, in the uh, education um, sort of curriculum so, so I, I sort of picked up on that and so the art side of it um, was quite strong so um, yeah and, and um, uh, from there I kind of just progressed and um, um, I I sort of left school thinking I'd go to university, but then I, uh, it was a time when you could actually just wander into jobs and things. There was quite a lot of work around, so instead I decided I would kind of just work in factories and kind of um, and um, and try to do my writing in my spare time and, and see how that went. So, and I kind of just persisted with it because. A lot of people do have those ambitions to be writers, but um, actually, it's it's all about the persistence and, in a way, sort of a kind of a stubborn cussedness and, and <laughs> determining to carry on against the odds and, and, and discouragement and so forth. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and did you play with or explore other forms of writing as well as poetry? Why poetry? Um, yeah, I I found poetry was a form that I was best at or, or most enjoyed. Though I dabbled in short story writing and um and I was also drawn to writing at school um essays on 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 various things and so I think those that sort of was the groundwork for me and in, in, in the way I've developed as a writer so I'm very much a new product of as I said of, of my kind of the, the 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 background that I had as a as a really as an adolescent and um so I did attend university briefly but I kind of dropped out because it, it didn't seem to um, have much for me in terms of what I was wanting to do um, and uh, this was before um, kind of the 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 idea that you you attended university to um, to uh, get a um, get experience for a, for a job well that's that's how I, I thought of it so there was a kind of a, a tension between in me between um, the idea of getting a nine-to-five job and 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 wanting to be a bit of a bohemian writer, so I, I sort of had this romantic idea of, um, of probably just uh, <laughs> of uh, attempting somehow to 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 be a writer and sort of deliver my wits a bit and. Um, as I say, take a succession of um, of uh, factory jobs and labouring jobs um, to support my writing habit, as it were. Mm. <laughs> and how did you know, poetry help you to process life and what you were observing in the world around you? Well, I would say that I was um, quite interested in political activism also, and that was, a, I'm talking about the 1970s, which is a time, of course, of a lot of progressive um, Political movements and um, a great, great a time of great dynamic change in New Zealand, and, and it was almost like a, a ready-made narrative, and that you had this ogre and the uh, running the country, the leader uh, um, Rob Muldoon, and and you had all these. Um, uh, sort of uh, movements springing up like um, gay liberation and and women's liberation and and um, and the Maori um, political move- movements for liberation. So they were all there, kind of it was all kind of bubbling away and fermenting away. And so I, I was thinking about how to relate this to 
to to literature and and so I was I was quite drawn to um, left wing writers also and um, you know um, sort of a very and various kinds of various kinds of experimental writing and and oppositional texts um, Jean Genet and um, Samuel Beckett and um, Eugene Ionesco and, um, and uh, yeah Ionesco and and so those kinds of um, I suppose Eastern European writers or something was an area that attracted me. Um, anything which um, enabled me to help define myself against the larger um, culture. So it was because uh, um, that was a time when people were doing that. There was quite a lot of writers that I knew, uh, people like Bob Orr, um, Murray Edmund. Um, um, Dave Mitchell, um, Sam Hunt was probably the best known, that, who were kind of um, going out into into the public sphere with with these with these transformational ideas about the power of literature, basically um, that you could you could you could actually write poems and make a difference to society. That was sort of a rather idealistic way of looking at things back then, but it was something we seemed to actually believe could happen. Um, so, so yeah, we were we were on that sort of post sixties bandwagon of um, the, the counterculture and um, revolutionary change was actually something in there, something that was possible, something we believed in at the time. And um, I mean that that actually led to I think a nuclear free New Zealand and um, you know David Longy and 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 all the various movements which followed around the time of the. Um, uh, uh, post the Springbok anti and the Springbok tour of 1981, so those kinds of political movements uh, were related, I think, to the literature of the time, and I was very much part of that. Though I was sort of really following in the in the wake of, of say, a, a, um, a slightly earlier generation, people like Ian Weary and um, Alan Brunton uh, and Bill Manhire, who 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 were sort of university educated poets but who also had an interest in, in transforming society with 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 revolutionary ideas about literature so um uh, they were in the vanguard and i was sort of following along a bit behind <laughs> on a little motor skid or something and and eventually um they uh I, I i i i'm not sure how it happened but except that um i, I suppose I, I sort of latched on to other other um post um Sixties uh, movements like punk rock and 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 the the ideas and that um, and and the sort of um, the, the, the the transformations of the nineteen eighties and in terms of um, in terms of uh, music and and the arts and and so I've always been um, fascinated by by ideas that are happening in the society and not necessarily. Um, Emerging from my own psychology, as such, although I, well, to a degree, I, it's it's me as a member of this uh, culture, this society here in the South Pacific. I've always had that sense of needing to be grounded here, which is why I've always kind of stayed here rather than headed offshore, like many of my um, peers did back in those days. So, did you find coming in on this amazing wave of you know, writers who were writing quite politically and things like that? Did you find that creatively? Liberating or sort of slightly restricting. Um, well, it was it was it was more an intuitive thing. So I, I kind of f- followed my interests, and and um, I was um, very drawn to, as I say, exploring um, other kinds of literatures, other other um, um, more ex- more exotic um, ways of writing, and as I say, experimental. Literatures and trying to see if I could sort of homo- not 
um, sort of make them more home or do a homegrown version. So, 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 so it was important for me to actually have these, or not quite mentors, but certainly um, pathfinders such as um, Alan Brunton, in particular, with his Red Mole group, who um, who seemed to be you know break new ground and and, and to to challenge the. The the the, um, the the nostrums and verities of the time and 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 introduce this this kind of internationalism, so uh, I was quite taken by this internationalism and, and tried to do a local version of it without travelling overseas. So it was all about staying here and kind of in a cargo cult culture kind of way. Um, things would arrive here and then it's how we interpreted them locally. Uh, that I thought that was that was the thing to do. Um, and it was going on everywhere. So, so you had this ha- happening in stand-up comedy. You had Fred Dagg. You had Billy TK. Um, you had split ends. Um, that was the seventies um, being redefined as a kind of neo-nationalism by this generation, which succeeded, say, the Baxter Kerno uh, outlook of the of the fifties, and um, and, the, and so so. The, I mean, this is this is almost like a commonplace now of what was happening to the culture, and so I was really just following along. It had been laid down, but I, I suppose I was I was uh, in a sense uh, someone who. What was going on um, um, in a different kind of way, so that I saw um, that um, New Zealand needed um, or, or had had these gaps, which about which things weren't being articulated about about the culture and the society. So that, that's where, where I found fertile ground, and I kind of operated in those spaces, and so I, I sort of reaped the harvest, you know. 20 or 30 years later where it seems like um, not necessarily that I was right but certainly that there, that I was able to make a, a rich vintage of, uh, of poetry and literature out of from my own point of view out of that out of that uh, out of that time, so um, I mean, you could actually say that um, it's still being re, uh, still being re re. Um, it's the 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 70s and the 80s the 60s the 70s the 80s those three decades of great transformation in new zealand culture and society and which which the following decades have kind of really um are just the inherited that those changes um that 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 they remain extremely fertile territory for 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 writers now um and i could actually um, given enough time, uh, I could explain how how much of the writing now is, comes out of that, that that era. So, so a lot of the things that are happening in, in literature now, uh, um, you could you could point to point to um, origins um, there in that in that time, like a sort of like a, a great explosion of, of talent and, and and new ideas and things happening. And you brought your own. Sp- Pacific viewpoint onto it as well because you know you're talking about culture but you know you're a Pacifica um, writer of Rothman and Tongan descent you know how were you able to express your Pacific voice on top of that New Zealand environment? Um, Yeah well uh, this is you know what is interesting here is in a way it's not a question of what had been asked um, 30 years ago it was that was how suppressed it was, um, and 
it's only more recently that people have asked me about my heritage um and so and so I grew up a time in a time of assimilation and conformism and so I, I suppose it's true that part of my writing uh, practice comes out of a, a, a kind of a bridling at that and rebelling at this attempt to, to kind of domesticate my um, my uh, uh, heritage into a, into a, into a particular narrative about about New Zealandness at that time. So so we've 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 kind of uh, transformed society. So um, talking about it's it's almost it's not quite nostalgic, but certainly it seems to belong to another era. Um, the the era of my youth and in, in, in those terms because um, the, we were not encouraged to to even acknowledge um, our Pacificaness at that at that point. Uh, certainly that's that's what I found. So so I, I did have the advantage of growing up in the island. So so I was able to experience at first hand uh, what 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 that what that world is like. Um, and and certainly there was a lot of. Um, we did find a lot of uh, um, narrow-mindedness when we when we got here, um, and it was a matter of finding um, places where where sort of the the, the community was sympathetic um, to to um, to your cultural background, um, and that 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 I was one of the lucky ones who did go through the system relatively unscathed. I mean, I. You know, I have family members who who didn't have um, the same uh, experiences as I did, so I, I, I um, you know, and it's, a, it's quite a visceral thing where um, where you can actually encounter um, you can encounter injustice or, or unfairness within the system because simply that's how the odds were stacked, um, and so um, and it is a matter of kind of. Of, of of luck. I mean, I, I, many of my um, contemporaries I was at school with, uh, quite a few of them went off the rails, um, and I think it was in a way related to the the um, pressures on um, Pacifica peoples and, and and Maori and so forth. Um, and so, and so I, I also witnessed that. But it was always uh, um, for, for for various family reasons. We you kind of needed to have a structure in which our family was lucky enough to have, um, which um, sort of preserved us from um, getting too involved in, in like gang culture and things like that, which were around in the neighbourhood and, and stuff. So, um, you know, that, 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 that uh, I wouldn't call it negative, but simply the reality of the situation. That's how things were um, back then. Um, um, so when I when I incorporate Pacifica, it's it's always a, with, mindful of my own formative years. Um, but you know I have I have younger relatives who have completely different experiences because they have say moved here from Fiji or or uh, Tonga within the last twenty years, um, in which and it's far more positive and and um, celebratory of um, you know um, Aotearoa New Zealand's place in the South Pacific. So um, yeah, it's kind of an interesting comparison to make, I guess. <laughs> well, to sort of finish up, let's talk about the fact you know you are the poet laureate of mm. um, New Zealand, and now what has that meant to you as as a poet? Um, I, it certainly raised my profile. I, I um, and I think I, um, 
it's it's basically it's good for poetry. Um, I think when I, when I took over from Selena, she she sort of pointed out to me that it is really about advocating for poetry and 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 the positive benefits that, that poems can bring in people's lives. Um, and so you're really you're really like a guardian of this role. Um, and it's not so much about you; it's about it's about the power of poetry and and you and you as a representative of that. Um, um, you've been chosen to 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 kind of uh, heighten the awareness and, and and what 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 poetry can do for people in all, in all kinds of ways so 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 being an advocate and um and and kind of um supporting other poets um and and promoting poetry generally um i mean i i do have the fact that i've been writing poems for, for a long long time and i will continue to do so so this is this is um uh, not an interval but it's a, a different uh, experience to it's 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 an it's an addition to what I, I usually do, um, and so I've been very busy with uh, <laughs> lots of lots of invitations to do all kinds of things related to poetry, and and the, the only aspect that I have missed out on is like being the cultural ambassador who travelled to overseas festivals because of the pandemic situation. So that has has um, impacted quite strongly on on what they what the National Library sees as the role of the of the poet laureate, which is to, which is to, to to travel abroad and and kind of talk about New Zealand literature. Um, um, you know, to all those audiences who who, who are currently missing out on that. So that that, that is, um, you know, just um, what what the situation is. But um, even so, I'm still really busy with with uh, with uh, invites around New Zealand to do all kinds of things and be on panels and judging panels and award panels and as well as um, take part in, in sort of lots of Zoom meetings um, with various um, poetry groups overseas um, as well. Yeah. <laughs> Well, um, thank you so much for coming on the show today, David. I could have quite happily just talked with you for the whole hour about poetry <laughs> oh, and oh, things like that, so yeah. we'll definitely have to get you back yeah. to continue this conversation. Um, and congratulations on the, the, the collection of poetry, the, the Wilder Years. It is a fantastic book, and all the very best with your future works. Thank you very much, and it's good. Cheers. Well, we're going to take a short music break, and we'll be back soon.
Welcome back. You're listening to Otago Access Radio and right on with Vanda Simon, which is the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors and sponsored by that great team at the University Bookshop. Carmen Mewburn is the award-winning author of a multitude of children's books, many of which have been firm family favourites in the Simon household. And she's recently published a memoir, Faking It, My Life in Transition. Kyle, welcome to the show. Nice to be here, as you always. Yes, I was going to say, we should be welcome back to the show, because I have interviewed you about your your children's books in the past too. And I have to say, I really enjoyed reading um, Faking It, My Life in Transition, which was such an open and honest account of your journey from being a biological male into the woman that you knew that you um, are. So how did you decide when was the right time to actually write a memoir and put this out in public? Yeah, um, as you know, as a writer, if a publisher comes along and asks you, would you like to write a story? You go, yes, I would. Thank you very much. Um, That's the flippant answer um, because I was approached by random um, penguin from Claire from Penguin who said she'd read my blog on Facebook when I was coming out and stuff and thought there was a book in there and I was a good enough writer to pull it off so she asked me and then but I did have that sort of you know internal discussion with myself about you know have I transitioned far enough is it you know what what have I got to say what's new to say because I didn't want to just tell my life story um so it was all about you know working out and then in the end I decided actually why not? I have something to say and I've gone through stuff and yeah, so there we are. <laughs> My career was a bit of flatlining at the time so I thought something to, something something to, to perk do. it up. Because <laughs> I was going to ask you, know, did you write it for your own needs to put it out there or for others but, you know, the dice were rolled in your direction. Yeah, now that's, a, yeah, I mean it's always both, you know, if you're going to write memoir especially, it's or any writing really is, is, isn't it? You think, I'm writing it for myself but there's no point in writing it if no one's going to read it and with my life I felt like I had something to contribute, different perspective on being trans and the issues and I, I was hoping that I could put it in a way which you know, as a picture book writer, you you deal in metaphor and simplicity and putting things in a nice way that people that it resonates in a deeper level. So I was hoping that I could tell my story in a way which resonated with more than just trans people. It wasn't just about trans; it was actually about life and being yourself and being true to yourself and relationships. And there, there, there was a lot lot there to unpack. Yeah, totally, and we had a. That's that's the interesting part with the, you know, having a secret is just such an impactful thing on your your every every aspect of your life. So your memoir gave such insight into you and you know how immensely difficult and challenging it was not to be your true self. Can you um, tell us a bit about that from when you, you had this first awareness that things weren't quite right within you? Well, that's uh, I've, I've likened it on occasion to being a you know a deep, seat, a deep mole from you know the Russian spy movies from the seventies that I grew up with. You know, you've got this family who are the perfect American family, and they're actually Russians, and they're waiting for that moment which may or may never come, and so they always have to be aware that they can't, they can't, they have to not react to Russian language. They have to not 
like certain things because you know Americans don't like vodka and or, or sauerkraut or borscht or whatever. So you have to say no, no, I do not like borscht. I am American, and that's sort of that's sort of how I felt. That's there's all these things happening around me, and I'd have to go no, no, not interesting to me. No, I'm going to watch the footy and have a beer and and get on with life. Yep, now I'm a perfectly normal bloke here. No, nothing to see. And you, you're sort of totally conscious that every minute was that, you know, your spider senses <laughs> on alert going, dear shit, someone's looking at me. <laughs> so you were turned into uber male. <laughs> I know, totally. I, was, I mean, I avoided being a total blokey bloke because that wasn't me either. People would have probably, I always t- tended to um, freak blokes out. So real blokes would get a bit nervous around me for some reason. If I tried to be too blokey with them, they were all like, oh, what are you doing? This is not how you do it. <laughs> so I'm not sure what I did wrong. I never, still don't know what I did wrong. But I had some very awkward moments with blokes in my life. <laughs> so it must have been exhausting, though, having to, to, to live this fake life. Totally. Yeah, it just wears you out. And But on the other side, you just keep telling yourself, well, there's no other option. I'm... I don't want to do this. I don't. I wish I was normal. I wish I was <laughs> could fit in. I wish it wasn't so hard. But every morning you have to say, "Well, that's the price I pay." Is that push on, pretend, fake it? So you you just basically had to march on and, and try to ignore that side of you for quite some time. Then totally all my life, and there were periods when you know, sort of when things were going really well, and you thought, "Oh well, maybe maybe I had enough." to forget about it you know maybe that was maybe all I needed was this and then things would flatten out and become normal and you go actually this is not fulfilling because your identity is you know there's such an important part I mean I didn't I mean and I also had that thing you know you have that you don't know any different so you sort of think well you know maybe it's not that important maybe I can wiggle past because I don't know how normal. I don't know how you feel. You know, I don't know if you get up every morning think, "Hey, you're you're hey, a real woman. woman. <laughs> <laughs> Look at you, gosh. Look at me go. You know, I feel like a woman today. I'm really feeling just hundred percent woman in my womanness. And mm. you know, see, I don't understand how other people feel. So for me, it was that every morning thing. Well, okay, here we go again. Another day of pretending to. What do I have to do to get through this day? It wasn't. I mean, it sounds it sounds really tragic, but it wasn't. I mean, it's just it was very automatic. Totally, yeah. Mm. And there are moments, of course, you get hard moments, but most of. I mean, most in most people in most lives, you you wander, you muddle through, and you don't think about much. Mostly, mm. you just end up at the end of the day, and it's like, oh, didn't actually stop to think about. The, you know my existentialism, <laughs> my you know my life. Mm. So, were there any um, no? People who gave you an awareness that actually maybe I could live differently to how I am existing now. Yeah, I mean that was a difficult one because all the trans women I ever saw, which are few and far between, were firstly they were the ones that you heard about were normally you know good-looking women, <laughs> and you think bugger, <laughs> is that what you need to? Do? You need to be a good-looking woman to get the. And um, on the other hand, was I from my circle? It was always then. If anyone in my, my my environment would be going, oh, look at them, oh, look at those blokes in dresses and stuff, oh, they don't fool me, I can tell. 
You think, really? <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of trans women out there who you haven't been able to tell at all that they're trans, but you pretend in your back of your mind, I know, that I can, you can tell. spot them. I can spot them. They all look the same. The spidey radar. <laughs> you know, yeah, the gaydar thing. <laughs> yeah. Now, one of the incredible things that utterly shines through in this memoir is your amazing relationship with Marion. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Now, how vital has her support been for you? Yeah, that was um, in the beginning. It was the main driver not to not to come out. Mm. It was that thing of I've got Marianne in my life that I don't need any more. I can live with this. I can surely I don't want to give up that. You know, that's too important. And I can do anything else. I can get past without if I keep Marianne. But of course, the fact that I had the secret and things were going started. Messing up, I was going to say a naughty word, messing up my my relationship. And so then in the end it just became that unbearable point of pushing away the person you love the most. And, you know, you're, and that was when it became, well, you know, I have to do something because you, you know, it's not – I either lose Marion and because I've got the secret or I lose her because, of, you know, I come out and – and at least if she knew who I was, then what I was, then you know, saying what I was sounds a bit like I'm mm. a monster. But yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I can't take it seriously, really. It's all just, it is what it is. Eh? It, life is life, and people are who they are. And that was what was refreshing, too. Um, you talked about you know, what this book can bring to people who um, aren't trans themselves, mm. is just this incredible relationship journey you had yep. with her as well. And, and that, that, that trust and the not wanting to hurt. But hurting by not by hiding totally. yep. and everything like that. And is that sort of you know? I mean, because the, the foundation of any good relationship, enduring relationship, is honesty. Mm-hmm. And I was as honest as I could be, and yet that not being able to be totally honest created these little, you know, these little. It's like a big house, and there's these locked doors, and you think, and the more it goes on, people are going, I wonder what's in that door, <laughs> <laughs> and, and it just becomes more and more, and you build up more and more. So it became more and more sort of toxic because it was I wasn't it wasn't it was keeping all these dark shadows and so we, you know when you, that moment finally came when you did um, come out to her uh, was her reaction different to what you thought it would be yeah she was I was I was always confident she would not she'd run away and scream in horror and get out a pitchfork and a Flaming, flaming torch, but um, she was. But I was. My biggest concern was that she would be pitying me and feeling sorry for me, and that was, you know, that was one I was really worried about. That she would think, oh, and then it would be always in the back of my mind. Then is she staying with me because she pities me and thinks she has to, and I didn't want that either. So it was all that sort of. But she just went cool um she was worried about that i had cancer or something <laughs> she's more worried about me dying and losing me than me being whatever i am and and, and having um a slightly different future to what you anticipated totally. together yeah i know yeah she's um she's been great Can't, couldn't get better she's um 
Yep. She's an angel. <laughs> now, um, you, you spoke earlier about you know, how, how you got this commission essentially to write the memoir was through the um, person reading your blog online. And I recall reading your blog online about the facial, mm. um, the feminization yep. surgery in particular and following that. So how important for you has that um, physical manifestation and change in feminizing your body been in realizing your true self? Yeah, for me it was always that... The, you know, if you, the fundamental part of identity is when you look at yourself and think, this is not me. So it wasn't really, you know, I mean, I would have liked to come out looking like Angelina Jolie. <laughs> Wouldn't we all? <laughs> <laughs> but, but I knew that wasn't going to happen, but it was that thing about just being able to think, actually, even if I don't pass as such, it's actually all about just all those, there's, you know, certain elements which were, you know, the Adam's apple and the these massive things which were just vestiges of my puberty and testosterone and I think if you could just soften them and get rid of them the rest was, as long as I could look at myself and think, oh yeah, I'm not this outstandingly blokey thing, so it was just yeah, it wasn't about changing me it was just slightly softening my face really mm. so I could look and because I haven't really worried about you know, I don't think about boob jobs and <laughs> and um, and um, surgery under there as they say to be polite on radio <laughs> you know the um, gender gender affirmation surgery now it's called or reassignment surgery or whatever mm. they keep changing the acronym <laughs> so um, but I've never really worried about that it's not about that because I'm not really planning on using down there. Mm. <laughs> Either way, <laughs> whether it's got a whether it's an in or an outie. Yeah. And that's one of the lovely things too is, you know, I look at you having known you for years and years and years and you're still my lovely Kyle, mm. but you're a, the softer version. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that was the, that's why I went to Argentina because mm. you look at um, Thai surgeons and a lot of them come out looking, you know, every Western woman apparently has a little tiny nose, upturned oh. nose and a little tiny chin and a little tiny, and it's all lovely and there's all big lips and... Stereotyped. Which is lovely, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. And some, I mean, there's some beautiful looking women come out of it, but... You think they're all off a conveyor belt. So in Argentina was just um, the idea was that you could be in your family photo and people wouldn't go, who's that in your family photo? It was actually, oh, yeah, you're part of this family and your genetic inheritance. You're just a slightly, you're a female version of what you would have been. And it's quite a remarkable story and, and within the book, just that the, the physical constraints of being overseas and totally. and dealing with that. You know, was that um, a scary prospect for you? Or you just uh, once you've, I think, one of the things about coming out in such a big way, it's um you your levels of scaredness. <laughs> <laughs> it has to be quite a serious thing to scare me. Yeah. So it was all just, and I was always just looking forward and this was necessary. So it's just, I'm going to do this. I've committed to it. I'm no turning back. There was never any question of turning back and this was the place to do it. And everything else was just, we'll see how it goes. There was no, Marion was more worried than I was. <laughs> she kept sort of, had lots of had to drink lots of port. I can understand that. I mean, from the sideline waiting, totally. no control over no. anything. I know because, as I said, as I've mentioned in my book, you know, I was asleep the whole time. So <laughs> there's no stress when you're knocked out for, to, for, for a day. It's just quite easy. You go on the operating table, you close your eyes, you wake up, and you've got a jellyfish on your face. Yeah, <laughs> and everything's numb for a long time. Totally, and yeah, you couldn't move things. You had to suck out of a straw and. 
Couldn't go out to a restaurant without you know, be dribbling all over myself. <laughs> Terrible. Wouldn't recommend it if you had a date coming up. Okay. Thank you for the warning. No massive surgery. <laughs> painful surgery. Public service announcement. Yes. No. Now, you know, you, you've had this, um, but you have kept your given name of Kyle. Yeah. Um, why was it important for you to, to, to keep that identity? Yeah, it's one of those things that you think about. You know, over the last 50 years, I've thought about changing it. You know, what would I be? And I never, you know, people would come up with other suggestions and people said Kylie, and I mean, I grew up hating the word Kylie because it was <laughs> tormenting me my whole life. And um, I'm not a Kylie, and I'm not a Kyla, I'm not a... And what else? And I thought, well, it's not like... I mean, there's Cameron Diaz, mm. so if she can do it, my brother's called Cameron, and he doesn't look anything like her. So, so, so I can keep... And it was just that idea of um, looking at myself and thinking, actually, I've done a lot of work, I've... I've built my I've built Kyle from nothing, mm. sort of thing. I've created this version of me which I quite liked. So I'm not sort of I'm not trying to abandon my previous life. Mm. I'm just trying to have a different path on it. Yeah. So and I got rid of my the only thing I did I had to had to pay a couple hundred dollars to get my father's name out of my. So I've got no middle name now. I'm officially just Kyle. Yeah. Well, it's quite on trend, isn't it? I know. Marion grew up with that as well. She has only got one name. Mm. So we're both just a simple – got to get a new passport next month, a couple of months. Now, you seem to have had um, a lot of support and acceptance from, you know, from your writing community mm-hmm. and your um, Miller's Creek community. Now, have the people Miller's who, Creek. Um, <laughs> it's not Shit's Creek. It's Miller's Flat. Flat? <laughs> Sorry. I'm getting my little quirky towns mixed up. <laughs> quirky town. <laughs> we'll call it quirky towns. <laughs> so, you know, have the people who really matter to you um, been accepting – yeah, totally. Everyone mm. was, as soon as I came out, they said, gosh, I'd never expected, never knew, but I'm there for you. That's because yeah. it was not, yeah. Was, I mean, mostly, it's, most people doesn't impact at all either, anyway, mm. unless you see them, you know, they're not, even then, it's not, it's only people really close to you that have any real impact. Mm. Like Marion's the only one really, I mean, she has to walk, be seen in town with me. In the first couple of months, she was just like a watchdog, she was just snarling at people. <laughs> What are you looking at? What are you looking at? <laughs> so I get that because you know, as, as the writing community, we sort of kind of felt protective yeah. to you. So I could imagine her. Yeah, she's um, yeah, she's yeah, but, yeah, the, yeah the writers community. And you, I mean, I was sort of ninety nine percent sure, you know, writers community was would be really supportive. Mm-hmm. So that was um, it was more about the local community because I mean, when I first came out, our one of our local friends said, "Oh, you'll have to leave the valley." <laughs> And we're thinking, really? Why? What? What's going to happen? I was thinking, but that did instill a bit of a sense that, you know, maybe she's got a point, maybe. But nothing happened. Everyone was just like, oh, cool. Well, well. And Miller's Flat's got a reputation for that sort of being open and friendly and nice, inclusive place. No, oh, that's fantastic. Now, one of the things you do as an author um, is visit school and promote literature. And, you know, I imagine to some it would be hugely helpful and uplifting them, for them to see you uh, and, and you know professional life and, and what's happened in your personal life. Now, what has the response been from students um, with your journey? Yeah, I, I've just I've had a bit of a internal dilemma with that. Originally, was that well, you know, what do I do? What do I do? I do anything different? Because I've been doing my my routine for quite a while and in the end I thought well if I'm invited as a writer I'm just going to do my do my thing because it works it's successful it's fun it's kids love it 
and um, I'm just there. And and I'm, my whole thing is really that it's just normal, natural. There's no no reason to make a big deal about it. I'm just I'm still who I am. Although I have had I've had two opposite ends of, of the spectrum. One was like I get a teacher coming up to me saying, "Oh, I've got a, a boy who was talking came up to her in the library the other day and was saying very excited." For me to visit, and she said, "Oh, why?" And she said, um, "Because I'm going to do that too one day." And she went, "Oh, cool." Never really knew. But on the other hand, you had one who uh, a parent wrote to say her kid, um, six-year-old boy, was was rather perturbed when he discovered I was a woman because <laughs> 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 I'd written Dinosaur Rescue, and he was like, "That's his favourite book," and he was like, "Oh," she had to explain to him that it didn't really make any difference mm-hmm. who wrote it. Whether it was a man or a woman, yeah. so she, um, so yeah, that in. I mean, kids, but kids normally come around, and if you enjoy, if you're a fun person and interesting, they don't really care much. No, you get awkward questions sometimes, like you know, why did you wear that outfit? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> because I liked it. I know, I know. <laughs> what do you do? Why did you? I had the one in the supermarket recently with a kid, a girl in a pram, um, not a pram, a trolley. Coming shopping trolley coming towards me and she was looking at me and I looked at her and as she pulled up, pulled up towards me she went you're not a girl and I went and, and I went well and you're a banana <laughs> and she said no and I said well, well you look like a banana she went no I don't and then by the end of it she said oh what's, what's your name and I told her, and she said, oh. and I said what's your name and we parted as friends <laughs> so she was just because that idea was she was slightly wondering about the whole thing, mm. and um, but we we got over it. And that's we're about, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You firm friends at the we're end. Good now. And that's one of the things I, you know I, I love about you is you know, humour is such a fundamental part mm. of of who you are. So you must have used gallows humour quite significantly. Yeah, totally. Yeah. You got to. I mean, there's you can take it seriously. And part of my my biggest. Um, one of my things I was really c- conscious about early on was not to let it overtake my life, mm. that it wasn't this life ch- – it was, it was certainly life-changing, but it wasn't necessary. I didn't want it to affect every part of my life. Mm. I was trying to sort of keep hold of all my good things in my life I already had. I didn't want it to sort of become that I'm just totally focused, you know, and that, on me, that it wasn't about me. I had to be, still be aware of, of Marion. I had to be aware of our friends and how they were relating to this – change it wasn't just here i am it's all about me yeah look at me and yeah so uh, another interesting facet of you totally yeah it's just another just a different version 2.1 yeah 2.0 what is it <laughs> <laughs> 10 point, 10.0 computer, computer stuff yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um you have finished or successfully published this memoir and, and you had said earlier that you know it came at a time which was a bit of a writing drought on mm-hmm. the children's book front so what's next in your writing career then i've got a my first picture book in a long time is coming out next year with penguin mm-hmm. called have you seen tomorrow and um it's another beautiful piece of work if i say so myself <laughs> <laughs> um and i'm 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 still writing for children but i'm also dabbling in because before I started writing for children, I wrote four novels, adult novels, which never got published. And one of them is an historical saga set in Mills Flat in the 1930s, which is back at my agent now doing the rounds. Ooh. She loved it. So things have their time. You know, you write stuff and it's, as you would know, you know, you write something and they say, no, no, we don't want it. And then 10 years later, you 
put it back in again and it's actually it's now all it's the rage. suddenly it's all <laughs> yes we do want that mm. so i'm writing middle grade stuff and i'm trying to get away i'm over dystopia stuff i'm i'm trying to do something which offers hope and yeah but of course maybe the world's not maybe it's not ready maybe the world wants to be um, dystopic for another few years. Yeah, you know. from my personal perspective, I'd be quite glad for that to Move be on. over. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and I mean, as you as you know as well, all writers have been around a while. You sort mm. of the idea is not to keep on the treadmill. You don't want to just churn out another. You don't want to just do. You want to do something which is more meaningful because you realise the commitment. And you realise what you have to put into it. So actually, before you start a project, it's like well. Do I really? Is that really? Am I passionate enough about that to really spend that time to do it? Because there's all other stuff. I've got so many ideas. You know, you've got, yeah. and you think, well, I have to settle on one for the next three months, six months, year. What am I willing to do to do that? It's going to be consuming my life for how totally. long? <laughs> exactly. And why would people? Why would anyone do that? <laughs> why would anyone? <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. This mad thing of being a writer. Totally. And lovely that um, of the, the, the four long works that you had in a, in a suitcase that um, you actually wanted them to see the light of day again. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Got lots of things that uh, – and, I mean, it, it just, yeah, I mean, it's, I'm a children's writer, but really I'm a picture book writer. That's my Your passion. Fortean. But that's sort of – I'm not really writing what the world wants at the moment much. So I'm um, – also make trying to make a living so mm. children's writing is what i do and have established myself for doing and i feel, feel like I, I understand children at that certain age don't understand teenagers at all i've tried <laughs> it doesn't work my ya attempts have been abysmal failures really for me anyway mm. so there's, there's the adult stuff you know because i've got a story about my mother which i'm working on for which i had for a while which is called trailer trash <laughs> Great title. <laughs> so, so she's still alive too. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's actually a redemption story, which is yeah, it's not as bad as it sounds. Well, thank you so much, Carl, for um, coming in today and talking about faking it, my life in transition, and lovely to hear about what's happening in your um, your other creative writer works as well, and all the very best. Cool, thanks a lot. Thank, um, yeah, hope people enjoy my book. <laughs> Well, that is our show for this month. So thanks for joining me and my guests, David Ewilton and Carl Mewburn. Uh, Join us again next month for another hour of wallowing in the wonderful world of books. But until then, enjoy lots of great reading. The University Bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect, just-smell-those-books-and-breathe atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, Oh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand new releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner, the University Bookshop is evil. You have been warned. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.